Good morning. Good to be with you all. It's always fun to travel, to see new people, eat in different restaurants, get to know different folks, get to know a different area. Isn't that one of the great things about travel is getting kind of stretched out of your comfort zone? Well, we're going to travel in today's passage. We're going to time travel a bit uh, to a very different culture, a very different world where we're going to see how the gospel began for the very first time to move out of its original context, out of Jerusalem, and go out and become a religion for more than just Jews following their Jewish Messiah, uh, and to begin to spread around the world. And it begins right here in this chapter. It's a story that's centered on these two men, Peter and Cornelius, the Apostle Peter, of course, and Cornelius, who was a uh, Roman centurion, uh, that rank is about equivalent to an army captain in today's context. Um, he was a Gentile, but Cornelius was also a man who feared God, we're told. So he at least knew something of the Jewish God, had some respect for Judaism. And in Acts 10, you can read how Cornelius and Peter had visions about each other. They each had a vision about the other, and God told Peter to go see Cornelius. And not only to go see him, but to go into his house, which was forbidden for Jews to go into a Gentile house, and then to actually eat with him, which was also forbidden, because God wanted Cornelius and his family to hear the gospel. The thing that is the kind of the mind shift for us is that God had told Peter to do something that was very unusual, that felt completely wrong to Peter. And it was hard even for the other believers to accept what Peter had done. And so he gets called to account. He gets called back to Jerusalem to explain himself by the early church that say, Peter, what are you doing? And that's what happens here in Acts 11, where Peter is called back to explain why he is baptized this Gentile Roman officer and his family as followers of Jesus. So I'm going to read from Acts 11, uh, starting in verse 1. The text is in your bulletin. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men. And ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea and the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message 
by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have a vision for this entire planet that Although you began with one group of people in this little nation in the Middle East and first sent your son to be the Messiah to the Jewish people, you very quickly sent your people out. You scattered them from Jerusalem to bring that message to Gentiles and to all the nations. Thank you for uh, this story, this historical account of how the global church began. And I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds, that we might hear and understand what you would have us to know, that we might then do and be all that you're calling the body of Christ to. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to unpack this text uh, with three points, Peter's new understanding, Jesus, the global savior, and the global church being launched. So as we just read, Peter is explaining to these church leaders in Jerusalem that God had told him it was okay to go into Cornelius's home and how there was this small congregation of people there waiting anxiously to hear the message that this man of God was bringing to them. And Peter preached to them. He laid out the gospel of salvation just as he would have to any Jewish person. But now it was Gentiles hearing the message and responding. And Peter reported that the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. And he's referring to Pentecost. He's referring to that day that the Holy Spirit descended on them. And today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day the global church celebrates Pentecost, 40 days after Easter. 
And it's the day when Jews from many nations were all gathered together there in Jerusalem. And the curse of Babel was reversed that day at Pentecost. The curse that God had put on the people who before the Tower of Babel, there was only one language on the whole planet. And because of the arrogance of the people at Babel, God divided and frustrated people by forcing them all to speak different languages. And so for all those years, people were divided by language. But at Pentecost, Jews from many nations came together with different languages, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to understand Peter because he had a message of repentance that they needed to hear. And they heard it, and they confessed, and they trusted in Christ, and the Holy Spirit descended on them. And languages so often continue to divide us. Language and culture so often divide people. And that's one reason at our church we've been providing translation services, um, simultaneous translation and translation of the bulletin into Spanish and French. We have many French-speaking Africans in my church, and so they are able to hear the gospel uh, in their own language. And I was so excited to hear that just in the last couple months, you have started offering translation services here at Orangewood in Arabic and Turkish and Farsi. And so that people who have come from other nations and speak those languages can hear the message of the Lord in their own heart language. That is one of the most loving things a church can do, to enable people to hear the gospel in the language they most understand. So here in Acts 11, we see these Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, just as the Jews had on Pentecost, when Peter shares the gospel with them. It's hard to overemphasize how shocking of an event this is, because just, just a few days before this happened, Peter would have never even walked into a Gentile house, let alone baptized Gentiles into the family of God. These Gentiles are suddenly his brothers and sisters. But before this could happen, God had to convince Peter that it was okay even to go see Cornelius and eat non-kosher food in his home. And that's not easy because Peter is not a guy who changes his mind easily. You see this beautiful development in Peter's life that takes a while for him to grow from self-confidence to Christ confidence. Peter had been a man who thought that success in this world was achieved by bold action, by strong personal gifts by a sharp mind and a courageous heart. Peter had many gifts and he'd been relying on them all his life. And because Jesus loved him, he broke Peter of his self-confidence. He humbled Peter and showed him how weak he was. That even though he claimed to love Jesus more than any of the other disciples, What Peter really loved most was his own safety, and he looked out for his own skin more than anything else. That's why Peter denied Jesus three times, his best friend who he had sworn that he would die for. And when Jesus is at a trial for life or death, Peter denies he even knows him. And that experience broke Peter 
of his self-confidence and his pride so that he could grow in Christ-confidence. Before God really uses someone, he always breaks them first. And we don't like that. We don't want to be broken, but it's a gift, a loving gift of Jesus to be broken of your pride and self-reliance. And so if he is doing that to you, don't resist him. It's his love and commitment to you that you would depend less and less on yourself and more and more on him. Because after Jesus breaks us down and brings us to the end of ourselves, he rebuilds us up in faith and dependence upon him so that we can do things we could have never done before because we're doing them for his glory and in his strength. So Jesus restores broken Peter to ministry, asking him to feed his sheep those three times. And then he commissions Peter to go out and to preach the gospel. And before long, we find Peter here in the city of Joppa, the exact same place Jonah was when God said, Jonah, I want you to take the word of God to the Gentiles in Damascus and bring them the word of the Lord. And what did Jonah do? He ran the opposite way. And now Peter's in the same city being told to do the same thing. And what's he going to do? Peter has a bad habit of saying no to God. You remember when Jesus was about to wash Peter's feet and Jesus said, or Peter said, I forbid it, Lord. No way. You can't do it. And here, some of that same stubborn Peter is still there. The Lord had to say three times to Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response was, no way, Lord. I can't do that. I've never eaten those foods. You don't know what you're talking about. What was it about this command to kill and eat that was clearly from the Lord that Peter would react so strongly and say no to God's command. Why were kosher laws such a big deal? It's hard for us to understand how deeply um, committed Peter felt to keeping kosher laws. Maybe the best way I can try to translate it is if any of you go to a barbecue this afternoon, and imagine you show up in your host's backyard, and um, they say, hey, great, glad to see you. Hey, you see, um, you see that golden retriever and that beagle over there? Um, here's a machete. Go kill the dogs. Bring them over here to the grill, and we're going to barbecue them up. And you, you are going to love barbecued dog ribs. They are delicious. Do, I see you shaking your heads. Doesn't that just sound wrong? Like, like eating horse or cockroaches? I'm turning your stomachs on purpose because that's how Peter felt when God told him to eat things that he had never eaten before, that he thought were wrong to eat. And God was saying, don't call something unclean that I've called clean. Peter had a deep set commitment to not only kosher food laws, 
because this was bigger than food. This was bigger than diet. A Jew could not even enter a Gentile home. He couldn't eat kosher food if it had been prepared by a Gentile. God had created these rules to separate his people from other nations. He knew that his people had wayward hearts that would so easily be led astray by the false gods of their neighbors. And so he was trying to protect their wayward hearts by keeping them away from these other nations as they were growing up in their understanding of God. But the Jewish people got puffed up. They got arrogant. They began to think that, well, God has set us apart from those other people because we're better than them. That there was something inherently good about them and something inherently unclean and unredeemable in all of the Gentiles. They began to think they were actually better human beings than the Gentiles and that Gentiles couldn't change. And don't we sometimes look at other people that way? Don't we sometimes look at people and think that they are permanently and irrevocably outside the kingdom of God because of where they were born, because of what they look like, because of what they have done, or because of what language they speak? God did not choose Israel, and he did not choose you or me because of any special inherent qualities that we have. I love the bluntness of Moses in Deuteronomy 9.6. Know that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people, and so are we. We have no claim on God's blessings because of anything that we have done because of any righteousness or goodness in us, because we have none. If anyone could have been saved by right behavior, it would have been the Jewish people. They had God's laws clearly articulated in the Ten Commandments and throughout Leviticus. God told them exactly what to do and not to do. And at Pentecost, it was devout Jews who had come. These were some of the most faithful of the Jewish people who had traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. And yet to these most devout Jews, Peter preached a gospel of repentance. And they were cut to the heart and they confessed their sin that they needed a savior. The bad news of Jesus' gospel message is that even being the best Jew or Pharisee around could not qualify you for salvation. But the good news of the gospel message is that even being the worst Gentile, even being the most sinful man or woman on earth cannot disqualify you from being in the family of God if you are washed by the blood of Christ. And the gospel unites us in our brokenness and our restoration in Christ. And it unites people from all over the world. So that's point two. Jesus, the global savior. Peter and the rest of the church are here in this chapter learning that the Old Testament kosher laws and these ceremonial regulations 
have completed their purpose. They're being taken away because they're no longer necessary. And in fact, they'd been abused by God's people. And that's one reason they had to go away. The the Ten Commandments describe the moral law, what God wants to see in our hearts. And all these other Old Testament laws, these kosher laws and ceremonial laws, they were meant to be a fence that defined who were God's people and who were the people outside. The problem was God's people's hearts were so far from him. And so what happened was you had a a rotten apple. Their hearts were rotten at the core and these fence that separated from people became a, a joke. They were external regulations that they were paying lip service to when their hearts were so far from God. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 15 when he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus was saying that it's our sinful hearts that other people can't see that separate us from God, not our outward behavior. And Jesus was building a global people of God who were united not by the food they ate, not by their cultural habits, not by the way they dressed or the language they spoke, but united by hearts that had seen their sin and brokenness, confessed it to Jesus and been washed clean. And that is what makes the family of God. I'm sure some of you have brothers or sisters who are not followers of Jesus. But then you have people like I do, African and Arab brothers in my church that I can truly call brother with my full heart because we have a bond that is deeper and more profound and eternal, deeper than any blood bound that we have with a sibling. That kind of understanding about what the kingdom of God could be began even before Peter in this experience. It began with who Jesus chose to minister to, who he was drawn to. Jesus had eyes full of other people, eyes for the outcast, for the rejected. And so when he saw lepers and children and women and Samaritans, and despised tax collectors. He didn't turn the other way as everyone else did. He turned towards them and moved into their lives, into the life of that Samaritan woman. He exercises a demon from a Gentile girl. And when he feeds the 4,000, he leaves the Jewish territory and goes over to a Gentile region called the Decapolis and feeds 4,000 Gentiles both physical bread and spiritual bread. And so from the very beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ was a message of an outward-looking, stranger-seeking kind of love. 
The gospel of Jesus is an outward-looking, stranger-seeking message of love. To Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're a hard-partying atheist fraternity boy like I was, if you're a Samaritan woman, tax collector, prostitute, Roman soldier, or if you're a stubborn, hard-headed, arrogant knucklehead like Peter. Jesus says, all of you are welcome in my kingdom if you will bow your head and drop the knee and admit your brokenness so I can cleanse your heart, make you a new creation. And then as that new creation, you will be one more stone in the wall of this household of God that Peter writes about in 1 Peter 2. He describes this household of God made up of individual stones, each one of you, different stone, different shape, different texture. And together we're built up into this household of God in which we lift our voices together in one chorus of worship. Jesus is calling the body of Christ not to be a bunch of identical bricks in the wall, but to be a diverse, inclusive, global family of God. And that's what Israel was supposed to be from the very beginning. Even though he called out this one people, he always intended his people to be a light on a hill. Jerusalem was supposed to be a lighthouse that was drawing all of the world to come and hear about Yahweh to see the way that God's people loved one another in radically sacrificial ways because of the way they'd been loved by their redeeming God. And then all the nations would come magnetically pulled towards this God. He told Isaiah in Isaiah 49.6, he said, it's too small a thing. Isaiah, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That was God's vision that he gave to Isaiah. And Israel failed to accomplish that mission. And Jesus came to make global salvation possible. And then he handed the responsibility to us to be that light on the hill, drawing in anyone and everyone who's attracted by this way that we love one another. It's too small a thing for our churches to represent only one segment of the communities that we are in. It's too small of a thing. We are, we're, at, we're poorer and weaker. The body of Christ is actually handicapped when we're monocultural. We're missing kneecaps and elbows. We're missing part of the body of Christ that God is trying to pull together. We're handicapped without everyone that God wants to be in the body of Christ. Our mission is the same as the one given to Peter, to be taking the gospel to all the nations. And the beautiful thing about the time we live in, about the cities we live in, about Orlando and about D.C., is you never have to get on a plane to take the gospel to the nations. The nations are right here, on your street, in your grocery store. The nations are here, and we have the privilege 
of being part of the global church that was launched here. So that's point three, the launch of the global church. It happens right here in Acts when the gospel first begins to convert Gentiles into Christians. Um, It's so important that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, 28 chapters, and he devotes two out of those 28 chapters to this event. He, he, the, the, the vision that Cornelius has is mentioned four times, and Peter's vision twice. Why is Luke spending so much of his limited amount of ink on this event? Because it's a pivotal event in the history of God's people. Luke reports how the gospel after being received by Cornelius and household, it spread to many more Gentiles in a very unlikely place, in the city of Antioch. You see in verses 19 and 20, it says that many of the believers who went out from Jerusalem, who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, that's in North Africa. Some of them who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks, the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. So some of them first were just taking the gospel to the Jews in these various cities. That seemed natural to them because he was a Jewish Messiah. So they were telling the Jews in these cities about the Jewish Messiah. But these Jewish believers who grew up outside Jerusalem from North Africa, they had a more global mindset. And so when they got to Antioch, they even went to the Gentiles and they said, we want you to know about Jesus. And so they were doing this in the third largest city in the Roman empire. Only Rome and Alexandria were bigger than Antioch. Antioch was a city of about a half million people. So that's Tampa times two. And in Antioch, there was a mixture of Arabs, Romans, Greeks, and Jews. It was a diverse international city like like Orlando, like D.C. So these followers of Jesus, they show up in Antioch. They share the gospel with the Gentiles. And many of them embrace the message and become followers of Jesus. And the church leaders in Jerusalem hear about this and say, what is going on? Barnabas, get out there and investigate this. Find out what is happening. And Barnabas brings Saul with him. This is so ironic. In in verses 25 and 26, it says, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Here's why this is ironic. In Acts 8, Saul was leading the persecution against the Christians, imprisoning them, arresting them. And these followers of Jesus ran for their lives. They fled from Jerusalem to get away from murderous Saul. And some of those same refugees are here in Antioch preaching the good news. And in Acts 9, Saul becomes a believer He becomes a follower of Jesus. And just a couple chapters later, the same Saul, the Jewish Pharisee who was imprisoning and killing Christians, is in Antioch spending a full year 
pouring his time and energy into this young church in Antioch full of Gentile Christians. It's a church started by the same people that Saul was persecuting. And now he's there teaching them and serving them. Only God could do something like that. And if you keep reading, you'll see that these brand new Gentile Christians hear about the famine back in Judea, and they take up a collection. They take up a deacon's fund collection, and they send money to the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem because they saw that even though they had been divided by culture and by language and by dietary restrictions and all these things for so long, suddenly they were family. And so these Gentile Christians send money to relieve the suffering of their brothers and sisters in Judea. And they were called Christians. The word Christian itself would only exist because the gospel came to Antioch. It, it means Christ one or Christ follower based on Christos, a Greek word. You would have thought Messiah follower would have been the first name of the followers of Christ. He was a Jewish Messiah. But we only have the word Christian because of these Gentiles who became believers. And so the very term that we use for ourselves comes about because of the Gentile expansion of the kingdom of God here in the city of Antioch. And from Antioch, the gospel begins to spread so quickly throughout the world that very soon Gentile Christians outnumber those of Jewish background. And by the end of Acts, Luke reports that Paul is proclaiming the gospel without hindrance, even in Rome, the capital of the whole world at the time. It was a fulfillment of what Jesus had promised in Acts 1.8. He said, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. It began here and it continues now. That is still our calling, our privilege, and our mission to take this gospel message to anyone and everyone that God might call us to interact with, whether somewhere overseas or whether right here in your grocery store. But for the international character of the kingdom of God to be experienced, for us to get outside of our comfort zones and maybe eat foods we're not accustomed to or spend time with someone who speaks a different language, has a different culture, we have to learn from Peter. We have to recognize that God is doing something much bigger than we have realized, something bigger and bolder than we might be prepared to be a part of that we don't think we have the resources for, and we don't. To take this message everywhere God wants us to take it is going to involve some cross-cultural experiences that will take us outside our comfort zone. And thankfully, the Lord is as patient with us as he was with Peter. Look at his patience with Peter as Peter says no three times. And the Lord just presses in and patiently leads Peter where he wants him to go. Because he knew that once Peter took those steps, 
outside of his comfort zone, he would discover that his brothers and sisters were so more numerous and so much different and such a blessing that he had never expected. And so before I close in prayer, I just want to read what Peter writes some years after this experience with Cornelius. He writes in 1 Peter 2, urging us to think about ourselves as one race of people, fellow citizens in God's kingdom through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Peter writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, one holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, help us see that we are not in this household of God. We are not the people of God because of any righteousness that we possess because we have none not because of our nationality, not because of our education or the family we come from. We, all of us, were strangers, walking in darkness, walking the other direction from you. But you called each of us out of darkness, out of our stubbornness, out of our sin, into your marvelous light. And so we know that God shows no partiality and brings into his kingdom anyone who will confess their need for the cleansing blood of Jesus. So help us to see one another at the heart level, where we can see that we are all siblings, that we may have different skin colors, different accents, different food preferences, but we have the same big brother. We have the same father who makes us one. Let us live out that beautiful unity that you are calling us to in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, and especially here in the church for which Christ died to make us one family of God. Amen.